AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. You may or may not know, but AA Beyond Belief has a private Facebook group, and there's about 1,600 people in there now. And over the last uh, few months, really, since COVID, uh, the number of people that have been joining the group has really skyrocketed. And what's interesting is we're finding that many of the people that are joining the Facebook group are have, are new to this idea of a secular AA meeting um, or AA meetings that don't have prayer and so forth. And what we're finding is that there are a lot of atheists and agnostics out there in Alcoholics Anonymous that have a very traditional view of the program, but not all of them do. And one day I was reading the post on our Facebook page and uh, one, one young woman, um, she wrote that uh, she wishes that she could hear from somebody that really doesn't have anything to do with the steps because she would rather not. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, there is a lot of us that, uh, that don't. And uh, one person who spoke up on Facebook was John C., who is uh, my guest today. And uh, he's going to talk about how he stays sober as a, I'm, I, I, I'm going to say a secular person um, in Alcoholics Anonymous and what he has or does not have to do with the steps. How you doing, John? Well, all right. I mean, I could come in with a litany of suffering, but in, in reality, <laughs> I'm actually doing I'm doing reasonably well so far today, and well, under no compulsion to drink. Good, good. Well, thank you for for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, it's uh, this is one of my great pleasures in life is to sit here on a, a Saturday afternoon, or actually Saturday kind of morning, and talk to somebody about AA. So. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. When did you uh, get started with AA and uh, how, how long have you been um, taking a secular approach or has it always been that way for you? Well, I, I drifted into Berkeley Mall. Drifted, came crawling into, however you want to put it, um, AA in Berkeley uh, very early in 1988. And um, I had uh, a, a rather... Um, unpleasant introduction to the idea of powerlessness when I found out that I couldn't stop drinking. So um, after um, coming to multiple meetings every day and getting drunk every night, about 181 days in a row, um, I managed to stay sober mysteriously for about four or five days on some kind of effort of will and drank one more time um, over resentment at loud neighbors. And, uh, I took my last drink on the morning of July 17th, 1988. Oh, wow. Man, we are right there. I was uh, July 20th or somewhere around there of 1988. Uh-huh. The class <laughs> of 88 seems to have some significance. It may be the baby boomers hitting the wall at the same <laughs> yeah. time or something. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I was, I, was, I was 32 when I came into AA. Um, or rather, I became 32 in the process. And um, my... Oof, I was certainly, how to put it, I was emotionally atheist always, pretty mm, much. Mm-hmm. Um, I know certainly in, in my teens, from early teens, if I was thinking about it at all, I had a mixed religious background. Um, you know, my mother had been raised with a sort of vague, half-hearted church-going atmosphere and never really did much of that. My father, well, 
But my grandfather was a, was an Episcopal priest of, of actually some repute. I, I never met him, uh, but I think he was a man of considerable virtues or something. And my father was sort of a rigid, clenched hair, you know, sort of, he was a born-again Episcopalian, if such, if such things are possible. And, and also a, a, a very uh, rigid and censorious teetotaler for mysterious reasons. So that's, that's sort of in the background there. Uh, coming into AA, I was, I don't know, I, I, interestingly, I had read the big book a couple of years before I came to my first meeting. And um, I had found a, a copy abandoned in front of a bookstore and uh, read did it. Just, I don't did, were you looking for it or did you just run across it? I ran across it and was curious. I had seen references to it, to AA, a little bit. I'd seen sort of misrepresentations of AA being some kind of um, uh, self-determination sort of thing, which seemed vaguely appealing to me at the time. And I read it, and I was actually extremely impressed. That may be because I was so addled with alcohol, but I think I I was taken by the parts of the big book that I'm still taken by. Um, eventually, you know, more about alcoholism, uh, some of a vision for you, and certainly, you know, the doctor's opinion eh, a little more a little more feeble, but but some. And I don't recall. The, the disgust and horror I feel when thinking about we agnostics, which I, I still get now. Um, but it took it, it took about two years for me to actually walk into my first meeting after going around the block. I don't know how many times, but I did manage to show up before the meeting started, um, and was immediately met by a family friend who had known me since I was a child, and uh, he had known that I was an alcoholic before he knew he was. Um, he had um, he was he offered her a winery north of the Bay Area, and um, actually my family some of my family members had helped him plant his vineyard, and we had gone there to visit a number of times, and and he remembered to me sitting at the, his dining room table with you know all these guests around and washing his dinner down with bourbon and seeing me at the end of the table as a ten or twelve year old and knowing that I was on my way. Isn't that interesting? Wow. It, yeah, he said that when he looked up and saw me coming in the door at that meeting, he said, oh, John made it. Wow. Um, which I think it says something to me about about the power of this of this thing, of, of us of us telling each other the truth and showing up for each other. And, and we, I think we forget the significance of that. And one of my big objections to people going on and on about the steps is that they miss the significance, the big significance that comes with um, the the processes that we call, you know, one, two, and three, and twelve, and and the stuff in between. So much of the stuff in between is is like is transitory. It's you know, not long term stuff. It's it's homework. Um, it's there. So anyway, I'm not sure quite where I'm going at this point. Well, you um, know, I I think that you you make a good point. It's in my opinion, sometimes um, people. I think that people, if you're, if you're newly sober, a lot of people anyway, might be looking for direction. You know, they want to have a certain way of doing something and, and all of a sudden their recovery becomes academic. You know, it's reading a book, studying a book, trying to understand the principles of a step and so forth. And, um, what I've learned over the years is that those steps were written to describe an experience. 
and what we're having in recovery, in my opinion, is an experience and how you express that is going to be up to you and the experience that you're having and the steps, you know, they, like you say, they're, you know, the first three are, I don't even know if there's anything you can actually do. They're just experiences that you have. And that's the way that those people, in my opinion, verbalize them. And then, as you say, there are other, there's homework that you can do in between the the rest. I, I kind of agree with that, but yeah, there's a lot of people that, um, and I think that this has happened over, over the last couple of 20 years or so that um, there have been more, there's been more of a yearning to try to um, stick close to um, a particular dogma, I guess uh, that was created. And which in turn is almost all retroactive. Um, you know, and again, you think about it, here are the steps we took, right? But nobody had, ta- nobody had taken them. Nobody had. <laughs> They hadn't been written yet, and and indeed, many of the people whose experience was being drawn on never agreed with them. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people's stories in in you know you can read those in the uh, in the Dr. Bob biography and then the Bill one. And talking about the official AA one, there are people who wrote mm-hmm. the book who never read it. One of them one of them even rather adamantly says so. The the Australian, the News Hawk in the first edition, apparently was the one who sort of forced people in Akron to produce stories for the book. And he himself said afterwards that he never bothered to read it. Um, he didn't think it was necessary. Um, on the on the other hand, I mean, there's there's this legend, that, I mean, which I've been more aggressively debunked now, that there were some pure ur steps that were somehow inherited from the Oxford group that people were doing, which turns out not to be true. No, no, no. The, there, the, there, book, the new book about about the big book uh, writing says it wasn't until the late forties that anyone said anything about there being six steps, and that even even the Doctor Bob biography says uh, they even asked people who had been you know involved with the Oxford group for thirty years, and they all said no, there was no such thing as, as six steps. No, I don't think anybody ever stopped and said, I'm going to do step one or two. I think I think what was going on is there's almost maybe a mistake of history that they even decided to put them in the form of steps. But they were just cut, trying to describe what what they experienced and what they did. And they decided to put it in the in a numbered list. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so ever and, since and then everyone's been <laughs> and everyone's been obsessed with the number 12. Exactly. Ever since. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it is. It is. It is odd, and I think it's a, it, it. It shows up as a problem. I think especially with one, two, and three, and with ten, eleven, and twelve. Um, I think putting four through nine in order is probably a rather good idea. That I think what people were doing, the, the Oxford group types, and some of the early AAs was much more reckless and sort of unconsidered and impulsive. Is the story about Dr. Bob, you know, being dropped off at the hospital to perform surgery, you know, with a bottle of beer to stop the shakes and going out immediately afterwards and his family waiting up because he didn't come home because he was rushing around to try to make to make amends or to confess his drunken history to people all over Akron. And luckily he got he got away with that. But a lot of people have tried that sort of thing, have stepped into into who knows what kind of, of, of trouble and haven't made it. Um so, I mean, I don't, I don't particularly object to the steps existing, but I certainly object to them being um, fetishized 
and and above all of them being turned into a set of magic rituals exactly rather than than things that really that i think for a lot of people i almost want to stop them and say you know this is all about not drinking right <laughs> that that this all of this struggle for spiritual advancement and wonderfulness is really about is only really not much more than an extension of, of taking care of not being hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I find myself sometimes um, at my group, if I ever talk about the steps, and we we typically don't, believe it, you know, I don't think most AA groups, at least they used to not always talk about the steps unless it was a particular step meeting. But if I ever do mention them and we have a discussion about them, I always kind of, um, I always try to put a little caution in there that um these aren't a cure-all, you know, you, the, the, you know, don't get carried away with this. I mean, don't, don't think that you can do these things in a certain way and you're going to be just fixed, you know, because it's not going to happen, you know? Um, and I, I think that, I think that people can set themselves up for, um, uh, disappointment maybe, or they can maybe beat themselves up unnecessarily because they think that, uh, because they drank or because they're depressed or because of their, not their relationships aren't going right, that there's something wrong with them and the way that they're working their program. And I think that that's a danger. And I've actually seen that in meetings before. I've seen people really just beat themselves up because they think that their problem, their mental problem they're having is the result of their not doing a particular step the right way or whatever. Yeah. They missed, they missed the stitch in the ritual. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's yeah, dangerous heard, in my opinion. I, that's one thing I do call, I don't mind people, you know, work the steps. I think it's fine. The steps are great, but yeah, don't, 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 um, don't beat yourself up over them. If, if things aren't perfect in your life, you know, I, I've heard people come back or talk about their current sobriety as if, um, as if their previous about terms of sobriety were somehow not right. As if, as if they're having relapse invalidated their previous experience. And I think that is untrue. I mean, of course, there are probably some people who sober up and remain utterly dominated by resentment and what have you and, and, and so forth, or who try to sort of live exactly the way they did with alcohol magically subtracted. Um, but yeah, the, the, I don't think the, I'm doing it, I'm doing it the right way this time. Or the one I really dread is, uh, then I was ready to do what I was told. I hear that over and over again from people, and it's like, where on earth? It doesn't even say that in the book. You know, there's some we we acquire traditions in AA with incredible recklessness. We start do somebody starts to do something, and and it suddenly becomes it becomes oh we've always done that. Just a little story a story on that front. Um, the Zoom meetings I go to uh, uh, are mostly with the uh, a recently started fellowship, and it happens to be that in that fellowship, we normally close meetings with a responsibility declaration. And that has crept into it. It's become more and more common around where I'm living now, and it is almost it's almost the complete standard, although people are occasionally surprised by it. Now, at a Zoom meeting, of course, one of the frustrations with Zoom is that people try to say something together, uh, whether it's the serenity prayer at the beginning of a regular meeting or the responsibility declaration. Um, everybody flops around and you get a complete cacophony. It just doesn't work. 
so what so I found I was making I was making gestures into the camera to try to sort of conduct people so they could match. Which would include, I said, you know, when anyone reaches out for help, I would stick my hand towards my, my camera so it could be seen. I'd say, I want the hand of AA. And when I said a hand, I would wave my hand back and forth, always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. I would point at myself. And by golly, people are doing that in unison. <laughs> it's become a tradition. There, there are three or four people who do that every time, and it's not a bad tradition. I right. <laughs> But it's one, it's one of those it's one of those things that just you know we just assumed that somehow or other that was carved in stone someplace. I remember I remember uh, somebody locally who she used to run the actually work at the intergroup office. One of like two people in the whole Bay Area who actually gets was on salary from AA, and she remembered um, sometime back, I can't remember, sometime in the seventies when suddenly people wanted. To, stand, to hold hands at the end of the meeting. <laughs> but that was a completely unknown thing. It, it seemed to have spread from people who went to one of the big big uh, you know, conferences, one of those five-year conference things. They came back with this, and people were, were cringing in horror. It's like they were standing, they would stand at the end of the meeting and either have a moment, just have a moment of silence. I think sometimes they would say the Lord's Prayer or something. But at any rate, suddenly they were getting their hands grabbed by people next to them. And, it, it, you know, it's one of those things we just assume was always done. Uh, I'm told there, there are meetings in Seattle where they, when you, when you come in, they greet you. The first thing they greet you with is saying, we don't say hi. We don't hold hands. Um, <laughs> just sort of trying to, you know, 30 years, 40 years later, trying to counter that, that unwanted innovation. To them. Right. So it does. That's funny. Yeah, no, I, I, I've seen things like that happen. Um, even that my old, uh, my old home group, um, somebody would, uh, start something. Well, I'll tell you, uh, this is This doesn't really have anything to do with the steps or anything. This was just kind of a weird thing with that particular group. Um, <laughs> somebody died, right. And, uh, cause people die. <clears throat> and so, uh, the group loved this person and they decided to put his uh, picture on the wall. And then someone else died and everybody loved this guy. So they decided to put his picture on the wall. <laughs> and over the years, man, that wall just got full of um, pictures. I mean, and, and people that were just coming around for a couple of weeks, they'd die and their picture would be on the wall. <laughs> the place was really getting kind of weird, but it was like, um, that was just the norm all of a sudden. It's like, you know, one person decides that they're going to put a picture on the wall of a, de- of a deceased uh, former member. And next thing you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, I thought it was kind of weird. You have but, to. Yeah. You have to get a bigger wall. We we had a controversy around death here where um, after someone died, um, we'd had a memorial meeting stuck in between regular meetings to schedule. And it, we'd done that for, for decades and decades. Nobody had ever fussed about it. And then um, somebody's, somebody's non-alcoholic relatives came in and sort of almost took over uh, such an event and you know one of them was a minister who started you know holy rolling and stuff and people were horrified and the, uh, instead of they ended up voting not to have them anymore and then voted turned around and voted back because people were, were offended at that kind of control and you know had to sort of introduce rules to make sure we didn't call it a service and say it doesn't hold services and that it would be run of by and for 
you know, the, the people in the fellowship and not not family members, although they were invited. It was, it was a strange thing to see. We were suddenly confronted by something that we had done without thinking, and it still never got to be okay because you know it wasn't like the wall. There wasn't room for everybody. So you would hear that somebody had died and that you know, they had, hadn't been around for a while or didn't have a big body of friends, and so people would mention it and they would go, oh, yeah. And somebody else would die, and oh no, we have to have a big. It, it, it became, it became a, one more place where you can have a problem where nobody thought there was one. Right. Yeah. So, um, getting back to the to those to those steps and 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 how you see the program, how do you see your recovery? Is it more experiential than um, than academic? Um, um I. I think it really centers more around. Um, I think I think the, the the processes that we describe, that we ascribe to the first three steps, um, do not have clear beginnings or endings. In terms, of, I hear people talk about finishing step one, which I, I don't think can be done because I think my understanding of what it means to be an alcoholic uh, is subject to revision on the basis of, of new evidence. And, and also just always hearing from other people. The question of what, what is the common experience that we have that makes us alcoholics and not, you know, those guys over there or just me. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm at a point now where, uh, the, the, again, another one of those cliches that got graven in stone is, you know, don't, don't compare uh, or look for, uh, towards what they mean is do compare. Compare, don't contrast. Right. Um, um, look for the similarities. I, well, but I, I think with enough experience, actually, the, the similarities, I have great confidence in the similarities. So I actually like hearing from other people's experience that's different from mine. I like hearing from people who were periodics. Because for someone like me who drank every day, the idea that I could stop and start again would have been a horrible temptation. If I could have worked that out, I might be dead by now or, or still drinking. I don't know. Um, and I think my experience as somebody who, who couldn't stop at all, you know, at the end for the last, what, eight, eight, ten years of my drinking, I think, you know, it, I don't want to suppress that experience in thinking that I have to massage it to be, you know, on, on, on party line for somebody else because I don't think that makes sense. Um, same thing with, with, you know, stuff like mentioning drugs. Um, I am my ex-wife's sponsor. I used to joke about being the last of the thoroughbreds because we essentially didn't have any addictive history with other substances. Um, you know, I smoked marijuana about 10 times over between the age of 15 and 25. And I was exposed to cocaine twice at parties when I was too drunk to notice the difference. And and that's my drug history. I've never done a, I grew up in Berkeley in the 1960s and I've never done a hallucinogen. Um, I've never done an opiate. I've never done a benzo. I've never done a barbiturate. Yeah, I um, didn't. I, I wasn't a, so, a drug user either. I, I did smoke pot a couple of times uh, when, when I was in my 20s. Um, but I, I didn't really like it because it always made me intensely, I mean, very, very paranoid. Um, it just really was a bad experience. I found it pleasant, but not worthwhile. I mean, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't pleasant enough to overcome the aggravation of smoking. Mm. So I like to observe when people are talking about that, that Bill and Bob did more drugs than I did. 
<laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> Which is true. Yeah, they, and, they did. And they said so. And they said so in the damn book. Yes. So the idea that you're somehow not supposed to say that or that it's an AA rule that you don't mention them is, is another one of those deranged pseudo-traditional things. That just That's weird, oh, too. Look, I I, I've seen that come and go over the years. So like when I was first, like back in the early, I mean, late 80s, early 90s, when I was coming to meetings, I, I would be I would remember old timers sitting in the room and getting upset as someone mentioned their drug use. And they'd always say. And A is down the street, you know, and they shut these people up. Well, after a while, that settled down, you know, and it was pretty common. I'm thinking now like the nine, most of the 1990s, it seemed like, you know, people could, would often introduce themselves as an alcoholic, an addict. And there was a lot a lot more of acceptance, I guess, and having a dual diagnosis. I hear that a lot and, and a lot of talk about um, drugs as part of their history and no one ever thought anything of it. And then all of a sudden, I think it's like sometime within the last 10 years, they came out with this and maybe, maybe it's not new, but, but there's this card that a lot of groups started reading before meetings, the the blue card. Mm -hmm. And it essentially just shuts down any, you know, it tries to control the conversation so that it's only pertaining to alcoholism. And basically I always thought, well, almost anything that, I want to talk about is pertaining to my, you know. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to say? Are you, don't talk about your work. Don't talk about your marriage. Don't talk about, don't talk about your jail time. I mean, of course it, it, it are, yeah, those, the blue thing, the little blue card, I don't even know where that was written from. I saw that come into play here. And actually my fellowship, my home fellowship at that point, El Cerrito, we rewrote our, our meeting format to make sure we did not include that. Um, because you know there were people who were putting their foot down. I have been at meetings where clearly the center of gravity of experience was such that that someone like that someone who was an alcoholic might not feel uh, feel fellowship. And I'm sure I've I've been at meetings where somebody who had an addiction history and you know and not much experience with alcohol might have felt alienated. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I have no idea where the line can be drawn on that sort of stuff. I remember once hearing someone, someone was talking, they were talking about this, about, I think it was heroin use. It was a fairly big lead drug. And, and they mentioned part of that experience. And I remember feeling about half the people in the room had one of those, ah, aha moments, like you get when you're, when you're first in AA and you realize you're not unique. And I realized, shit, that's an experience I have no sense of. They were talking about, the, the aggravation and anxiety of having to wait for the connection, of waiting for somebody to show up with the drug. And as I say, the whole, half the room just did this, this big sigh of, of, of identification and sympathy. So it struck me that that kind of thing is, it is instantaneous. I'm, I'm obviously not, you know, again, as a quote, pure, unquote, alcoholic, I have the moral authority to say it's bullshit that you can't mention drugs. But there's a center, you know, at, at a different meeting, even within AA, let alone an NA meeting, you, you, the center of gravity is going to be shifted to include so that that kind of revelation, that kind of connection is going to be more profound for more people. Well, so it's, it's made possible. But again, the people's experiences are different. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to, we're not going to have periodics only meetings or, or maintenance only meetings because that would be a little ridiculous. 
And I stick to that only requirement for membership as a desire to stop drinking. So to me, that means that if I, if I have a desire to stop drinking, I'm welcome in AA. Um, but that could also mean that I could have a desire to stop drinking, but I could also have a desire to stop shooting heroin. I could, you know, there are, I could have, I could bring other problems with me to, to AA and all of those problems will impact my sobriety and my desire to, to not drink. So it's interesting that the, the NAB book is quite specific about alcohol. So if you're a member, if, if you're a member of NAA, of NA, um, if you've ever tasted alcohol, you're qualified for AA because you, you have a desire not to do it. Um, that doesn't mean AA is going to necessarily be your best, your best place to be because maybe you will feel to be not enough shared experience, but perhaps. It's funny about this, the idea of shared experience, then going back to the big book, is you read early stories and there are these assumptions that, that everybody has experienced X or Y or Z. Um, of course, I've never experienced trying to drink during prohibition. But um, there's this assumption that everyone knows what peraldehyde smells like, um, which is a, a very nasty potion they used to give people to prevent uh, delirium tremens. And it was so nasty you had to, to chug along a glass of milk afterwards so it wouldn't burn your mouth. Um, now, I have no idea what this stuff smelled like or tasted like. I don't think anybody ever did it recreationally, but that's, I, I bet somebody did. Um, there are other things, too. People talk about drinking smoke, which turns out to be smoke, uh, which turn, it turns out that there's certain you know, industrial alcohols that were you know, not supposed to be poisonous that were so so uh, high in proof that you couldn't drink them out of the bottle. You would have to pour them into water. And when you poured this clear, when you poured the clear liquid into clear water, it would start, it would form a, a dark mass like smoke in the glass. It looked like cigarette smoke only upside down. And so people talked about drinking smoke. I've never heard of uh, that. And again, it was just assumed that everyone knew what that meant. And I had to go and look around and find out. I had never heard of it. I've never heard of that. I still, this is the first time I've ever heard of that. Huh. Well, good. well, there's one more thing we don't have to try. Yeah, that must be um, pretty bad stuff. I, I did I've, I did have, and this is awful enough, grain alcohol. Um, we drank that um, when I was in high school. And uh, that, that stuff is really bad. Um, I don't know why we did that. <laughs> but... You could get it. Yeah. Um, I guess because it was just so damn powerful. There's something about Russians drinking something they call spirit, which is contrasted to vodka. They say it's 96% alcohol and 4% regret. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, I'm thinking about, about step stuff again and about, again, that nobody had done them before 1939. And in some ways, the, the first edition big book stories are kind of uh, refreshing that way because they aren't. Nobody talks about working step X or step Y. But if you go into those stories or, or, and some of the second edition ones that are from people who are in very early AA, um, again, you, 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 can hear, you can hear people talking about stuff that shows up in the steps. There's one, um, I think it's he sold himself short which is the second edition story, and it's one, it's, it's one of the places where the, the, the bogus six-step story comes from. 
And the guy talks about working six steps in Dr. Bob's office and kneeling and praying and how wonderful it all was. And he, he promptly went home and got drunk again. But but he talks about his, his drinking as being um, initiated by getting resentful towards his spouse. And right there, he says, oh, I, re- I, I have, don't have that. I don't have my big book stories with me at the moment, so I can't grab that. But he talks about realizing that inventory isn't something you finish. You have to be able to do it. It's like the 10th step is invented there out of somebody's experience. It isn't sitting on the page as some abstract rule. So a lot of those experiences come come there um, a lot. Um, I know. There's a... Oh, I was going to say, there's something funny that happens every once in a while in our group um, here in KC. We, um, every once in a while, somebody mentions that they're kind of upset because our group never talks about the steps, right? We have, we have topic meetings and so forth. But um, I always think to myself, whenever I'm at a meeting, it's just automatic for me because I'm, unlike you, I, the, I, the, the steps, they, they drilled them in my brain. So almost anytime I hear something from a person's story, any sort of a topic that we're discussing, I can always see some, something from within the steps in that. And so I'm like thinking, you know, hell, we're in an AA meeting. You're talking about whatever your, 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 your recovery, your, your problems and your challenges and your successes and everything like that. That's all in the steps anyway. Anyway, so. Right. Well, our, our stories disclose in a general way. It isn't, we don't have to be scripted to match. Um, although sometimes, I think sometimes it's worth mentioning that because I think it helps people people from getting trapped into into some kind of ritualistic step thing. I have two favorite drunk stories um, at, at present. I mean, my, my, my favorites change from time to time. And, um, and I think they are worth mentioning if people can find them. Um, one is a, from the second edition of, of the big book. It's called New Vision for a Sculptor. And it's about a guy Interestingly, he is a very religious man. He's, he's uh, practicing, practicing Jewish, whatever. And um, twice he has the experience of, you know, in, in absolute, out of the depths, you know, crying out to God and getting sort of a result. Uh, once when he's trying to do a good deed out in the world and he gets drunk along the way and he ends up you know, in terror that he's going to bring disaster with him and he stands on the on the the landing outside of an apartment where he's, he's bringing art materials to a crippled child, and he, he asks God to get him through it, and he does. He's able to finish his errand, even though people have been crossing the street to avoid him on the way. And then later, he has the same experience lying in bed with his hand around the bottle's neck drinking, and finally and realizing in that moment that, um, that that's his last drink. Now, the story goes on. He spends 10 years being an absolute asshole emotionally blackmailing his family with his sobriety. Like, you know, do what I tell you or I'll drink again. And, uh, and he says that he, at the end of the story, he's, he is planning to try a drink because he hasn't had a drink for 10 years. And it's 1947, and he happens to mention this to somebody who's an AA member, and they beg him to come to a meeting. His description of the meeting is as powerful a description of a spiritual experience as I've ever had. Because, um, and again, I, I, I'll just roughly quote this. He says that the, the man, secretary in the meeting, explains that alcoholism is permanent. It doesn't matter how long you've been sober. You're one drink away from a drunk. 
which I, can't, I gather used to be a very popular cliche in AA, um, has been forgotten. And the man describes the experience. He says the floor fell out from underneath him and then came up again because he realized, as he said, I would, I would hear the truth and make the right decision. And he talks about it in Ackworth, realizing that because of what he'd experienced as an alcoholic, he had the opportunity, not the duty, to bring this to somebody else, that he could carry this to someone else where no one else could. And the funny part for me in that is that he's describing this extraordinary thing, and he doesn't have, there isn't anything supernatural or religiously related in it. He's, he's done a religious part, sort of. And it did what it, you know, what he got out of it uh, at that moment. And then literally 10 years later, he has a spiritual awakening when he comes into contact with other alcoholics and shares that and begins to share this progress, becomes part of this project of sharing our experience that we do. Now, another story, if you forbid me taking the lectern here for a bit, is uh, it, it's called The Reclaimed, and you can find this online. Uh, it's from, from the book. And uh, it's, a, it's, again, it, it, it's a story larded with heavy-duty religious stuff. The guy's progress as a drunk. The turning point is when he stops going to church, and his poor saintly wife fades away and eventually dies, and all of his stuff. And he ends up living on the streets of Baltimore. And... Um, he is shaken awake sleeping on a cellar door uh, by someone who tells him uh, what he expects to be rousted. And the man tells him uh, that, that it is possible for him to be sober, that he knows of, of hundreds of men who, who are now sober. And, and the guy doesn't believe him. And um, he, he takes them home and, and he feeds them and drives them out. And the man says... Um, that he had been found sleeping one morning on a cellar door as I found you. I was persuaded by him to go to the meeting. And his kindness and concern moved me. And since then, everything has gone well with me. And now I get up early every morning and look out for the drunkards on the cellar doors and in the market house. I have already induced 19. If you go with me tonight to the meeting, you, as you promised, you will make the 20th. This is a man with six months of writing that story. And the, the man talks afterwards about getting sober. He talks about getting his life together, becoming employable, um, getting his orphaned children back in his life again after being refused because of his terrible reputation. And, you know, he talks about making amends. And that story is from 1842. Um, that's a Washington. That's a Washingtonian story, and I actually skipped over some of the Washingtonian references. Where, where did you find that? Where, where, where was that at? That story. Um, it has been reprinted in a book called *The Drunkard's Progress*, and it is originally from uh, a book called Six Nights with the Washingtonian* by Timothy Shea Arthur, who is an awful writer. He's a he's a temperance crackpot. Uh, enthusiast hack. So if you can find you can find that online, um, full text in any number of places. If you if you search for it, so the, the author is Timothy Shea Arthur, and um, and you know it's 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 bizarre because the story starts with all sorts of you know hearts and flowers, Victorian religiosity, but again it ends with a powerful um, 
quote, spiritual awakening, unquote, uh, story, which is entirely secular. And it's funny, one of the things, the man who, who, who awakens the, the, the narrator on the cellar door tells him, uh, when the man, when, when he says to him, there's no hope for me, I'm going to, I'm going to a drunkard's grave. And the man says, no, there is a new power in the world. And the word power is used several times. And when the man describes, the narrator describes going to the meeting and signing the pledge about the feeling of power surging through his whole body, um, which I think, you know, obviously subjective and individual, but I think in those nowadays, of course, we laugh at the idea of pledges, um, the swear, swearing off with or with a, uh, the solemn oath to us now sounds silly. But I think in 1842, it was so significant to say, not that you know the problem is the demon rum or you know the servants getting into the sherry or any of those 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 things. The problem with alcohol is me drinking it. And to actually say that and make the gesture of signing a pledge saying, oh, I'm not going to drink. That's the thing I can do. Um, that seems to have actually been an immensely powerful and important gesture for those guys. I think it, it lost its significance after a while because it became a thing that they would line up school children and have them sign pledges. If that was an answer. You know what's interesting, though, is when you think about um, <clears throat> what we do, um, back to the steps again, um, step three is a decision. So we do have to make a decision. We have to make a commitment to our sobriety. And a pledge is a commitment. It's a decision, uh, just like what we do. It's just we're not signing. We're not signing anything or calling it a pledge. But that's what was that was what was going on back then when they when they did that. Um, but yeah, Bill Wilson in in the Big Book, he 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 um, he um, dismisses pledges as not being very helpful. There, he apparently made several. Supposedly, his family Bible has three or four times he swore he was never going to drink again, and. And the, the idea of never rather than a day at a time is a problem too. But I think, I think, I think the pledge lost its power in some of the ways that, that trying to do, trying to do sex can lose its power. It, it becomes a ritual rather than, rather than an actual significant How about that? Experience. That's a good point. Wow. Very clever. That's very good. I think turning the corner of going to a Washingtonian meeting. And all they did was tell each other their story. That's right. Uh, and 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 to come up at the end and say, "Yes, I am one of you. I am I am part of this group. I will join this errand." And you know, one of the powerful things about them was that from their very first meeting, they 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 went home saying, "Let each one bring one." Um, I think that business there too uh, that that the. The twelve step stuff, the the stuff about carrying a message, is not one of the things I dislike most in AA. Is this sense of, of bogus hierarchy? The idea that you 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 finish your homework and then you get your merit badge to be a sponsor. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think and I think that is absolutely toxic and hazardous. I am afraid to suggest sponsorship to people who are new, because the people who are pushing to be sponsors. You want to have a show of hands for who's willing to be a sponsor? You want to see the craziest people? Oh, I know. The people that are raising their hands, exactly. Right. <laughs> and because there's the, they think they've, they've got, you know, a song and a dance and, you know, a set of rules that they're going to magically cure people with. And they don't. 
and uh, that's really disturbing. The the proliferation of mega sponsors is. I once heard a guy who actually used to be for years without any rotation did a, a quote big book study at uh, end quote at our one of our central offices, and this guy. Uh, what he was doing, he was just uh, he was re- recycling the Joe and Charlie script. I heard him share a meeting once, and I, I think he was actually sober, such as he was, but he boasted of having 150 sponsees, as, as if that was something to boast of. Yeah, I have long been suspicious and weary of sponsorship. I, I, I'm not crazy about it. Now, I know it helps a lot of people, and I know that if it's if it's done in a healthy way, it can be just fine. But I don't know the whole formal, the, the formal making formalizing it as a, as a part of what we do is where it becomes dangerous because then it's where people are pushing you to get a sponsor and people are pushing themselves on you to be your sponsor. And that's when things get really messed up. And if you just let things happen naturally, where you meet a friend you know, you have a friend that you trust and you can talk to. That's fine, you know, but the whole sponsorship thing, I do, you know, I don't, there's not a problem with, you know, looking, looking, uh, respect, having respect for somebody who may have had some experiences that might be a little further down the road than you are and maybe, you know, talk, ch- ch- checking in with that person or whatever. But yeah, some of the sponsorship practices that I see going on now really do concern me deeply. And I've seen some weird stuff happen over the last you know, several years, um, what, what you're talking about, those mega sponsors and also people who think it's so important, not only that they have a sponsor, but they let everybody know they have a sponsor and that their sponsor also has a sponsor. I am, I have read that that goes back to Cleveland, that it was in the 1940s. It was a way of people to establish, establish their place in the, the Amway pyramid of sobriety with Clarence Snyder at the top. And that's and that's straight. And one of the problems with sponsorship is because it's individual and face to face. It's a place where traditions can be absolutely trampled in the dust without even without any group conscience to observe what's going on. You know, I'm not an AA historian. That Clarence Snyder, he lived a long time, and he probably had more of an impact of, on what AA is like today that we're living than probably. Bill and Bob maybe um, because it made the, all that sponsorship and so forth um, because he lived up until the 1980s, I believe. I have seen his webpage. It was still up before he died. And uh, it says higher powered by Jesus across the top. And apparently somewhere along in the fifties or sixties, he married a fundamentalist woman and he became at that point, you know, a born again evangelical and his whole story retroactively changed to match it. Because, I mean, in some of the letters and stuff he wrote earlier on, he was actually quite critical of people coming into AA with too much religion. Um, I have had a sponsor for a while. Uh, I was five years sober when I asked um, Fred to sponsor me, and he had been sober for, I don't know, nearly 20 years at that point. Uh, was also pretty much God-free. And... Um, you know, we met we met before doing an H and I meeting on Mondays, or actually at, afterwards, and we talked steps a bit, and then our schedules changed, and that was that. Um, I did a I did a real full tilt out of the big book four steps, 
in one sitting, as is suggested, not enormously. Um, and I've, I've um, pretty much all of my fifth set material is out at a meeting level. I haven't really done that on any kind of face-to-face thing. But my, my, my positive experience of sponsorship closely has been seeing my, my ex-wife do it and her sponsor, who was the other thoroughbred I mentioned earlier. Um, this one, um, her name is Helen, had many, had a substantial body of sponsees, um, you know, not, not 150 by any stretch. Uh, but one of the things about them was if you heard them at meetings, you would never know they were her sponsees because they were all completely different. They all spoke differently. They all had different ideas. They all had different things. And that was true of my ex-wife sponsees as well. Um, but she, um, yeah, I, I don't think she ever cracked whips over people to try to make them do stuff. Um, she was very fond of pointing out that the actual fourth step as described is not anything like the kind of torture people put themselves through. Um, you list the resentments, you list the fears, you list the sexual context, you know, what was affected, blah, 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 and then your part. Uh, it's not about making everything your fault. It's not about telling everyone you're, it's not about your deepest, darkest secrets. That deepest, darkest secrets lines is one of those cliches. I don't know where it comes from, but it sure the hell doesn't come out of a big book. You're right. It doesn't. And, and basically, I, I, it says you share your story. You share your story with another person. Yeah. Yeah. Leaving nothing out, it does say that. But it doesn't say your deepest, darkest secrets. No, it doesn't. And um, it's funny. You know, there's another one, one of those uh, you know, true AA type things is the old little red book from the 40s. Uh, which is a guide to the 12 steps. And it's still in print. Hazelden has it out. AA, has, AA never accepted it, although the author tried to donate it to them. Um, and it specifically says that you're not supposed to share your fifth step with anyone in AA. Like the, it, it's like they, they're emphasizing the level of sort of cushion of, of secrecy or protection of anonymity actually extending so far that you should go to a doctor or a clergyman or something. I, I don't get either. But um, what I tell newcomers who ask about sponsorship is to, to get phone numbers and see who you end up calling. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the one of the unpopular notions that in both Living Sober and the, the sponsorship pamphlet is that sponsorship is not a permanent condition. The idea that that you know you're starting out with some assumption of equality and that you know, by the time you get at some point, you may be done. At some point, you may have done enough that you feel your that you can feel yourself to be a full tilt member of AA and not, you know, under command to behave in any particular way. I, I think that's a, a powerful idea that you know the sponsorship business. People are afraid to ask some of the sponsors, often with good reason, uh, because they feel they're stuck with them. That it's a permanent relationship. That it's as if they joined the foreign legion or something. Yeah, that's the problem of having it formalized like that, where you have to go ask somebody to be your sponsor and blah, 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 blah. It's just that formal thing. It makes it kind of uncomfortable and weird, I think. For me, it does anyway. We had a, 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 a thumper around here. He was actually named, nicknamed the Big Book Bill. Uh, he was very fond of quoting the Big Book, often inventing the quotes. <laughs> In some cases, I caught them. Um, 
And he talked endlessly about being so busy with steps. One of the things he would mention when he gave an actual care was that he had never had a sponsor. He'd gotten sober in a small in a small town in Canada, and you know the old codgers who were sober before him pretty much all were his sources of advice and information about what to do, and that he had ne- you know he had never been beholden to a single person as his. I mean. I guess the scary part about sponsorship is when it becomes somehow distinct, uh, distinct class or, or distinct rank from fellowship, where people are afraid to share because they think they'll say something that's contradicting what the newcomer's sponsor is telling. Or I've even heard people say, oh, they should ask their sponsor. Why shouldn't they ask you? Aren't you a member of the AA? Um, yeah, it's um, it's 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 a disturbing thing out there. Anyway, um, other stuff I'm thinking about, just stuff about what old time AA is like. There is a a weird and extremely bad novel called September Remember, which came out in my I, I think 1944 or 45, and it's anonymously written. And what the novel is is describing a man's first year in AA. From being driven driven drunk to his first meeting and to his first birthday, it is as I say, it is a it is a very bad novel. <laughs> it's got awkward slow chapters, um, but it describes New York AA as of perhaps 1942 or 43. And again, it's it's not old time AA as people describe it now. Um, interestingly, there are there are women as functioning full tilt members. Uh, again, a, a little early for most people's standards. He does talk about doing a fourth and fifth step, um, but I'm not sure he does the fifth step with his sponsor. It's it's a hard book to read. But you, I probably should extract some greatest hits from it because it does have a lot there. But again, the, the feeling of um, the importance of fellowship with other alcoholics it just cannot be overemphasized. And, and that's there in there. There's this feeling that uh, at one point the, uh, the protagonist sponsor uh, relapses and disappears. And there's all this concern about looking for him, wondering where he is, wondering if he's going to make it. And finally, even actually sharing this, oh, yes, we know him. He is one who's going to make it back. So how did you find that book? Were you, were, did, did you just have an interest in researching this kind of history? Oh, I had an interest. I, I, I think I, I saw a reference to it somewhere. And of course, I, I'm, not, I'm not organized. I don't have an archive. And of course, right now, I'm in a sort of temporary living situation. I don't even have access to my physical books. They're in, in boxes. Um, so I, I, I came across it and found it. And I, I think I actually got a hard copy originally. But you can find it on an online copy if you search I think the hockey trust. Um, actually, I've even I've even got it as a as a, a word document. Um, I could even email it to you if you like. Um, but it's you know it's one of those odd little things that turns up, and you know one of the gifts of the internet when it's not promoting cultish sideshow AA is that it does provide it does provide you with access to unexpected and surprising things in a lot of fields. Um, a, a lot of, 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 uh, of course, we've lost it now, but when, when Google was digitizing everything, you could search a gigantic swath of published material for all sorts 
uh, you wouldn't have thought were searchable. Um, and yeah, you again with AA stuff, you find either you know, people promoting promoting Snyder-esque AA or Clancy-esque AA, but you can also find at least some material out there that's much much uh, more expansive and helpful and and honest. Um, and it's hard to find. Or you can end up reading the orange papers where the guy can't say anything about AA for two sentences without calling everyone a fascist. Um, which is sad because the guy has obviously done, done a lot of digging. Yeah, that's a weird web. That's a really weird, weird website, though. I mean, it's just it's got all the it's not really organized in, in a really good way, I guess. But he's got man, he's got millions and millions of uh Informa- pieces of information out there that you can you can dig through um but yeah, yeah. He's, got, he's got an enormous amount of stuff but 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 the way he's got it is it, all filtered through this non-stop rabid rage another one that i would recommend perhaps is um aacultwatch.co.uk yes that's the real cult watch yes there's a couple of cult watches sites but i've been told that british one is the one you should go to mm-hmm yeah, and there are there are some fake knockoffs of people who are trying to undermine them. It's a bit chaotic. It's, they set it up finally as a blog, so but they've got like top, a topic column on the right, and you can search things for, like recovery rates or the names of of uh, subgroups. You can look up. There's very good stuff about back to basics, about uh, oh the the uh, primary purpose group, about Joe and Charlie. Um, and you can really, you can really uh, get some revelations about these things that aren't being handed. Well, that you mentioned Joe and Charlie a couple times. That they've made quite a comeback. Um, I guess they're they must be deceased now because I I actually saw them in person back in the probably the early '90s, I guess, and they were fairly old then. So I imagine they're, I'm, they've got to be passed on by now, but, um, I didn't think, I mean, I thought they, I thought it was kind of, I, I, they, they gave a really interesting presentation. I sat through their presentation on the fourth step and I thought it was good, but I, I had no idea that they would ever become such a phenomena that they have become now. And, you know, yeah. Optimistly yeah. too. I mean, yeah. you, you can download their tape, uh, there are groups that have their meetings formatted upon listening to their tapes. Right, which is kind of bizarre since those, since those, since they're really not they're not AA. I mean, if all this fuss about using non-AA literature, uh, <clears throat> that includes them, because um, you know they're certainly not. And as uh, when the AA cult watch people note that, that you know, the Joe and Charlie presentation almost completely skips the working with others chapter, because that's that's the chapter which the chapter working with others is the one that's full of stuff about about you know, enjoying freedom from alcoholism and about not being afraid and not having to hide and not having to control or be afraid. Um, that's very unpopular. It's the Joe and Charlie pitch is that you're supposed to be a slavish, obedient, um, you know, sponsy uh, uh, slave to AA uh, under the constant threat that you'll be struck drunk if you don't obey. And, uh, and that's, you know, just not what we're about. Certainly not what I signed up for. Not that I ever signed. I never haven't signed any pledges either. Um, so uh, we've been talk- we've been talking more than an hour, and I am um, I had a I've had a oops, sorry, I just dropped my last year's chip on the floor. 
for background flop props. Um, I do have um, I do have some vocal difficulties. I had a, a biopsy in February, and I'm still being um, being supervised for that, and I'm not entirely recovered. So my voice does indeed give out, and it's starting to do so. Um, I'm a little surprised I got this far. Well, I'm glad that you did. I <laughs> you did a great job. I think uh, taking care of uh, the the person on Facebook's um, concern. That yeah, just re- I think I think that what I got from your conversation is just relax with this, you know. Just go to your meetings. Have- <laughs> Don't be driven. I would say do do read them. I think I think the big book should be read for all of its ugliness, self contradiction, and wrongness, along with everything else. And I think I don't think there's any reason not to read the big book. I think there are reasons not to pretend to think it's swell or sweller than it is. There are parts of the big book that are just striking to me. I think more about alcoholism can be beneficially read by just about anybody. And there's stuff that's just not worth it. It's not worth the ink. Um, and, you know, and rewriting the steps is a little bit awkward to me too, because I don't, I think you'll just do some other kind of wrongness with them. Yeah, I'm with you on that now too. I was I was in the camp of writing the steps, rewriting the steps at one time, and I've done it. I've written them in my language a couple of times, but now I don't really need to have anything written down, quite frankly, anymore. I, I, yeah, but so I think maybe having alternate versions around. Yeah, it gives you something to think about. But yeah, I think, uh, and of course, having them on the wall with all the he's and the gods is probably not a good idea for, for a lot of meetings. But uh, if they are on the wall, you know, you know better. I mean, I think one thing is if, if you approach them, I I have, you know, extremely high confidence that that, that gods are make-believe, that, you know, there aren't any. So I'm, I'm not looking at the steps struggling to deal with God. I mean, I, it's, it's not my problem. Um I was talking to a newcomer before a Zoom meeting yesterday, and he was absolutely in a terrible state because he thought he was he couldn't get sober unless he believed in a god, and he knew he wouldn't. And he hadn't taught nobody to talk to him about that. So I was maybe, of course, I don't know if he even remembers because I don't think he was very sober. But I was in a position to just say, you know, please, I, you know, I've been sober 32 years, and I haven't had to worry about that. It's, you know, whether there's a deity or not. Um, isn't my business. I mean, it, it isn't my problem, shall we say. If, if, you're, if you're drinking because you think an angry God doesn't like you, of course, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps in a better position to be of help than somebody else. But yeah, I mean, it, back to the, you know, to the topic again, if, if you don't like working steps with the God, then A, don't work the steps, or don't work, don't do the God stuff. Um, and I think a lot of people are already working the steps uh, without knowing it. You're working, you're, you're working your first step all the years you're struggling with alcohol. All of those bargainings and backings and showings, that, that's, that's sort of really what's been happening. Yeah, I agree. That's how I, that's anyway. how I see it now. So, yeah. So, thank you. This was, this was really helpful. Uh, it was great talking to you. I enjoyed this very much. Um, and thank you for speaking for an entire hour after uh, your throat issue with the biopsy. Boy, that's... And, uh, and then some. <laughs> yeah. All right. Them. Well, that's it. That's another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, if you'd like to help out our site and podcast, there's a couple of ways you can do that. 
You can become a patron by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash aabeyondbelief. And for a monthly recurring donation of $1, $5, or $10 a month, it would help us tremendously. You can also donate through PayPal by visiting paypal.me slash aabeyondbelief, or just head on over to our website aabeyondbelief.org and click on the donate button. We'll be back again real soon for another episode. Until then, you all take care and be well.